Hi everyone, Father Tony here. Uh, joining me is Jonathan Stewart. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Father Tony. So we've got an interesting topic that we started on in our video portion of the show. We're going to talk about the Gospel of Thomas, but in a much broader sense than we usually do. So uh, to help us do that, we have Dr. Andre Gagné of Concordia University. Hello, Andre. Welcome. Hello. Well, happy to be here. All right. And so uh, just to recap a little bit about what we talked about in the video portion of the show, um, we talked about the Gospel of Thomas as a, uh, a collection of kind of interconnected sayings that would require some... Um, some, some secret knowledge or even some gnosis to, uh, to kind of interpret and, and that that was a, the, the way it might have been used as the, in the ancient communities that used it. So if you haven't watched that, uh, go back and check that out. You'll, you'll get some interesting insights. Um, I wanted to kind of take a step back from the kind of geeky stuff about it, though. <laughs> well, maybe it's all kind of geeky, I guess, but... Uh, <laughs> um, this, is, uh, this is a text that is very very popular and uh, you know you see it all over the place you see it in movies for, for you know for the mm -hmm. love of God you see it in, in that uh, Stigmata movie which mm -hmm. otherwise was fairly terrible but uh, yeah <laughs> but it was interesting you know the Gospel of Thomas references why do you you know what do you attribute that to why do you think that this is so popular I think it's um, because of its discovery, this is the first text that, that really caught the attention of scholars. Mm. Um, and, and probably the reason for that is because it's very similar to the synoptic tradition, or at least the synoptic gospels. There's a bit of, you know, we can maybe see a, a couple of uh, uh, parallel references to the Gospel of John. There are definitely some things that we, we find in Paul, but mainly... Uh, people that read the Gospel of Thomas, and when I do teach uh, the Gospel of Thomas, I have some students telling me, why isn't this in the New Testament? Mm. It's actually very, very similar to what I'm used to reading when I'm reading uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So I'm very surprised why this has not made it into uh, the canon. So I think that is one of the reasons um, why it's so popular. People made a quick association saying it's, it's it has to be a very old document because it doesn't con con contain any narrative, mm -hmm. but it's only a collection of sayings. And of course, they made connections with with uh, the supposedly Q gospel mm -hmm. or Q sayings. Uh, yeah. For the, for our viewers and listeners who aren't familiar with uh, Q, what is Q? Okay, Q is essentially all the common material that exists between um, um, Matthew and Luke, but not contained in Mark. So all the common source material that exists between Matthew and Luke, uh, scholars that propose that Q existed, they said they there had to be uh, a source that they called Q for uh, the, the, letter, the letter Q is for the German word Quelle, which means source. Um, and uh, so they reconstitute Q by taking all the common material between Matthew and Luke uh, that is not found in Mark. That would be Q. Uh, but Q does not exist. We don't have, nobody has ever found Q. It doesn't exist. It's a scholarly reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so this is very, very important because people think it, it's, it actually exists because there's people that write books on this, very popular, the Q gospel and all of that, but it doesn't exist. It is something that scholars have uh, reconstructed as a plausible way 
to explain what is uh, what is commonly called the synoptic problem. Uh, if I could just explain this two minutes, sure. uh, the synoptic sure. problem is essentially uh, trying to explain why there is a literary interrelationship between Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Why do these three Gospels, are? why are they so similar? So one of the explanation is that, okay, uh, one uh, these Gospels had common material to be similar. So there is this very popular uh, hypothesis called the uh, two source hypothesis, which would say that all the common material that exists between Mark, Matthew, and Luke, Mark is the source of that common material, and everything that exists only between Matthew and Luke, there would be another independent source from Mark, which would be Q, and that is that reconstructed source from from that common uh, the common the commonalities between Matthew and Luke. Mm -hmm. So it's essentially that. When I explain to that to students, you know, they get a headache after a time. <laughs> that's one. That's only. That's the that's the simplest explanation. The more the most economical way to to explain the uh, literary interrelationship between the Gospels, sure. at least the Synoptic Gospels. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And John's out there on its own. Yeah, John is a, is often understood as a kind of a, a autonomous tradition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we'll talk more about that in a bit. But um, so, do you see um, well the the hypothetical Q document and the Gospel of yeah. Thomas? What what do you see as the specific relationship there, or hypothetical I, relationship? Yeah, the, the only relationship would be in the in the sense of its genre. Hmm. Uh, in the sense that we're talking about if Q would 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 exist or would have have existed, uh, it would have been a collection of sayings. So the Gospel of Thomas is a collection of sayings. Uh, that's that's the only possible rapprochement that I could that that we can see between both of them. Mm -hmm. um, people that argue that Q existed would say that Q was a very very early document. Uh, because of its genre, because there's no narrative material and they're only sayings, they argue that the early Christians, what they collected at first, the compilation uh, of, of you know, the works of Jesus or whatever, were sayings at first. And eventually narrative material was added to those sayings. So they would say Q was very, very early, some date Q around uh, the middle of the first century, if Q ever existed, mm -hmm. would date it at the middle of the, of the first century. So the argument goes that if Thomas is a sayings collection, it must absolutely have to be very early because there's no uh, narrative material. This is a fallacious, I think, um, way of explaining Thomas's dating because there are sayings collections in the third century that existed. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the Desert Fathers and others uh, that are compilations of sayings, but they're they're from the third century. So it doesn't mean that because you have a, co a collection of sayings that is devoid uh, devoid of, of uh, uh, any material that is narrative in nature, that you're absolutely in the presence of an ancient text. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we need to be very careful about that. And uh, collections of sayings are, are a very popular um, way of conveying information. I mean, just look at Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, and, and especially collections of sayings in the case of Thomas that are, are, are really uh, put together with catchwords. Mm 
You mm-hmm. see, it's a kind of a mimic, uh, the, uh, m- m- mnemonic device eh? to, to kind of remember. If there's catchwords between sayings, it's easier to remember yeah. those sayings. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the art of memory uh, is a fascinating topic that I think we'll probably approach on this show <laughs> at some point, but, uh, <laughs> but, but not tonight. Um, yeah. What do you think the community that originally used this uh, sayings document, what, what do you think that community was like? It's very difficult to, because there's a lot of uh, ways to, to try to understand, is, was there actually in a, a community, a group of individuals that actually uh, read this text, or uh, this text belonged to a group of 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 believers, of, of people that would identify as some people call them the Thomasine community. Mm. It's it's difficult to know this for sure. There has been hypotheses uh, in the past by scholars. Some would say that the, the group that attached themselves to the Gospel of Thomas were a group of itinerant, radical uh, preachers going awa- around wandering, and and uh, the, the the Gospel of Thomas reflects that kind of ideology, itinerant. Uh, ascetic ideology. Uh, you see an example of this in, in saying 14, for example. Others would would uh, stipulate that um, the Gospel of Thomas has grown over time, and it started with a little community, probably based in Jerusalem, around the leadership of someone like James. And then there's there has been a crisis in leadership at one point. Uh, uh, you have people like scholars like uh, April DeConnick that that talk around those those ideas that that expose those ideas where uh, there's been uh, various types of crises uh, in in that specific community, which uh, is reflected in the composition of the Gospel of, of Thomas itself. So the Gospel of Thomas would have been um, would have started with a, a a little kernel of sayings. There would have been an original kernel of sayings that were, uh, she she postulates that uh, were built on on cer- certain speeches of of the historical Jesus, on various themes like eschatology and 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 wisdom and other things, and eventually there were later accretions added to the to that kernel of sayings, and and those accretions. Um, were added to that kernel of sayings uh, due to various episodes uh, that that this supposedly Thomasine community experienced. At one point, it was a crisis in, in, in leadership, and the community had to relocate. At another point, um, uh, later on, or be- she she specu- uh, you know she she speculates maybe somewhere around the the year sixty to hundred common era, uh, there's been uh, this this community tried to accommodate Gentiles mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and have them uh, integrate that community. So all the uh, early eschatological elements are found in in some of those sayings and there's a lot of anti-judaic elements that would have been added at that time in the gospel of thomas and later on a another layer of accretions somewhere between 80 and 120 common era uh, where the early eyewitnesses of that community die and at that time uh, the the gospel of thomas is put under the patronage 
of uh, this this individual called Judas Didymus Thomas. And uh, from that time, Encratic and Hermetic traditions are added. And this is where all the tradition from Syria comes in. So there are all sorts of hypotheses with respect to a plausible Thomasine community. But these, again, are scholarly reconstructions. Mm -hmm. It is very difficult, I, I would argue, from the content of the text itself, a particular community. Uh, even if uh, you, you can maybe think in terms of uh, groups of people reading this, because sometimes you'll have the, you know, the second person plural uh, 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 personal pronoun they or or you uh, as a personal pronoun you um, collective pronoun that will be used. But sometimes it's the singular mm -hmm. you. Uh, so. It's, it's very, very difficult. And, and some scholars um, argue that there, there was no, no such Thomasine community, that there was like the Gospel of Thomas was something that was read uh, privately by, by uh, you know, individuals, mm -hmm. um, lone individuals that had this collection of sayings and they read it and they meditated on its content and, and you know, they 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 grew in their spirit in their spirituality uh, through through the meditation of of the sayings of Jesus. So there's a lot um, different ways of actually approaching this. I think. I wanted to ask, uh, and you've already kind of addressed this in your last two questions, but uh, uh, it segues uh, well yet again. But. Uh, the material that's in Q that's similar to what's in the canonical Bible. Where do you yeah. think that's that's coming from? Is it are is it a redaction of the material that's in uh, you know Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Is it coming from the oral source? Is it coming from Q? Where yeah. where are they getting these things? It sounds just like the stuff that we have in the in the canonicals. Okay, so essentially, if I if I understood you correctly, you're wondering where Q comes from. Is that is oh, that no, correct? No, no, sorry, I'm wondering the the stuff that's in Thomas that uh, sounds like the synoptics. When oh, Thomas okay, okay, synoptics, yes. Where, yeah. where 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 is that coming from? Are they getting okay. it? Are they getting it from the synoptics? Are they are they redacting these documents? Or yeah. Are they getting yeah. it somewhere else? Yeah. It's a very good question, and it, this has been actually debated uh, for many, many years, and there's actually no consensus on this. So I'll tell you what, what the positions are. Essentially, um, for many years, people said that Thomas depended on the synoptic tradition. So Thomas had to be uh, this, uh, this tradition that was uh, uh, inspired by the synoptics, and it just took over from the synoptics essentially that's that's you know that because it's so similar to the synoptics it's completely dependent on it um many um german scholars some french scholars european scholars uh had that kind of approach for many years then uh, other american scholars questioned that and said no no uh, thomas does not depend on the synoptic tradition it's an autonomous tradition uh, it does have similar material but it doesn't that material it got from other sources it did not get that material necessarily from the synoptics because people that that share that perspective that say thomas is independent they would place thomas very early sometimes thomas even prior 
to the redaction of the the synoptics themselves uh, and and situate Thomas as a document very close to Q, for example, or similar to Q. So uh, they say there's no need for Thomas to depend on the synoptics. And then there's the middle ground perspective where there's some that say you have to take the sayings individually and analyze them individually. And where you're re where you're going to recognize in Thomas redactional traits from Matthew or from Mark or from Luke, then you can probably suppose that Thomas knew the synoptics there, but in some other cases he did not, because in in, in Thomas there's there's other material. It's not it's not just. Uh, it's mainly synoptic material, but there are other traditions from uh, other texts, eh, from the church fathers and 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 other uh, and other apocryphal uh, uh, texts. So um, so it's a bit there. Um, the question it's you know depending on how you position yourself, uh, if it does come from the synoptics or not, uh, depends on how you date Thomas. If you consider uh, Thomas to be an early document, uh, you know, first century document, or maybe second century document. If you think it's first century, then you're going to say it's autonomous. It doesn't need the synoptic tradition. If you say it's second century, uh, then you would say it probably depends on the synoptics for the most part. And in some other cases, it doesn't. It has another source or other sources for other texts. Uh, but now there's there's all the question that we need to keep in mind. The only complete text of Thomas that we have is a fourth century text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This this is what people um, you know often forget. Um, we have a, a Coptic text from the fourth century. That's the only complete text. The rest that we have, or at least the the the, the three fragments in Greek that we have, they're only fragments. They're in Greek, and on paleographical grounds. Uh, very early in the beginning of the 20th century, some scholars had dated them somewhere between uh, 200 and 250 Common Era. I was recently at a conference in Oslo, and I was giving a paper on uh, the Gospel of Thomas, and I started questioning the dating of those fragments, because, uh, and I was even talking with, with some specialists uh, that actually work with, with fragments, on, on the Gospel of uh, Thomas, and they're not necessarily working on those fragments, but they 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 work on very similar fragments, Greek fragments that come from the same area, the area that is called Oxyrhynchus, mm -hmm. and um, they 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 said we have to reevaluate the dating that was ascribed uh, early on to these fragments. And, and one of the scholars there was saying, uh, that he could recognize according to his expertise, probably a third century hand instead of a second century hand for one of the fragments. Uh, he, th there would be a case for that possibly. And at the same time, those fragments that we, we know of, uh, they're partial. They're, first of all, they're three independent fragments. They're not from the same manuscript. So there are three independent fragments of sayings that seem to correspond to Thomas. But at the same time, we don't know if those fragments are actually 
the Gospel of Thomas. It's not because a fragment has a couple of sayings that are similar that they were actually part of a complete Gospel of Thomas. They could have been fragments scribbled or at least sayings or parts of sayings that were scribbled. And we know that they were scribbled on scrap uh, paper because at the back of the, some of these fragments you have uh, for example, information about uh, uh, properties in Egypt and things like that, information that has no no relationship to Thomas at all, at the back, at the uh, recto side of, of the fragments. So we don't know what these three Greek fragments are. We, we know that they contain similar sayings, but we can't be sure. We, we speculate when we say these are fragments of the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, we speculate when we do that. So it is safer to say these are fragments from Oxyrhynchus um, that do contain similar sayings that are found in the Coptic version, even if those fragments are in Greek, they're found in the Coptic version. But we don't know if they were part of the Gospel of Thomas. Mm -hmm. Um, I hope it's not too complicated. <laughs> oh no, no, yes, yes, I understand. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, you know, those fragments, just as you said, they could be, they, they it could, could be, be a memorization yeah. note. It could be a quote. Because uh, absolutely, course, absolutely, uh, Jonathan, that, that could, exactly. Um, uh, again, uh, uh, kind of continuing on on this theme. So, so we talked about their their relation to the synoptic gospels. What? What about the relation to the Gospel of John? Some scholars like Elaine Pagels and April Connick, you know, they talk about Thomas being in dialogue with the Gospel of John. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, again, again, it's an interpretation. Uh, there's, 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 it's very hard from the from the text itself. In my humble opinion, and these are of course very, very respected scholars, and I do respect them, and I know them personally. They're they're great scholars that have contributed to the field, in in significant ways. But I I haven't been necessarily convinced by by these arguments, um, because it's not because we have the figure of doubting Thomas somewhere in the Gospel of John. Uh, that it's, you know, the, the, the Gospel of Thomas is a response to the Gospel of John somehow. Um, I don't necessarily uh, adhere to this perspective. And, and again, it's, it's, it's surprising that this would come up because we don't have that many references to John in the Gospel of Thomas, you see. Uh, if, if it was a text that wanted to polemicize against John. It would have been interesting, or in reaction to John, or being in, in dialogue with John, it would have been interesting to actually have more references to the, to the Gospel of John, and really engage in that dialogue, and trying to correct, you know, the perspective of the Johannine community with respect to its understanding of salvation, or you know, either Christological issues or, or pneumatological issues or things like that. But there, it doesn't seem to be the case. So I, I don't necessarily, that's my personal take. I, I'm writing two commentaries on the Gospel of John, uh, on the Gospel of Thomas uh, that should come out in, in a couple of years. But uh, of course, I'm going to refer to their, their, their work, but I, I'm not necessarily convinced 
that the Gospel of John is uh, is in dialogue necessarily, or the Gospel of Thomas is necessarily in in dialogue uh, with uh, with uh, the Gospel of John. There has been scholars that there have been scholars that have refuted that. I think about Christopher Skinner and others that have talked about uh, have questioned that that perspective. Um, what are some of the? I want to talk about some of the themes in in Gospel yeah. of Thomas, but I, I guess. Specifically, the the theme of twinship. Does it only yes. appear in that opening, or is it something that that uh, that uh, pops up uh, again? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it, I think it's an important theme. I think it goes up along uh, the lines, or it goes very well with uh, what we call oneness uh, in in the Gospel of Thomas. Of course, twinship is there because we have Judas, Didymus, Thomas, and we know that uh, Didymus means twin. Uh, and the word Thomas in in Aramaic also has that significance. Um, we know that the uh, the writing of Thomas seems to encourage readers to engage in the sayings of Jesus, or at least to try to understand what these sayings are about, in order to experience twinship with Jesus. You see, to become like Jesus. That's that's the essential goal. In fact, the goal of the Gospel of Thomas is to become like Thomas. You see, if Thomas was understood uh, as being the twin, uh, and the other tra- we have other traditions like the Acts of Thomas and the Book of Thomas that that portray Thomas as as some kind of twin of Jesus. Uh, this is what uh, actually. Um, the Gospel of Thomas envis- in, envisions for those who find the interpretation of, of the secret sayings of Jesus. You see, I, when I think about the Gospel of Thomas, I think of, and, and twinship, I think about uh, Logion 108, for example. If I can read it, uh, it goes as follows. Jesus said, whoever drinks from my mouth will become like me. I myself shall become that person and the hidden things will be revealed to that person to him so if one drinks from the mouth of jesus he will become like jesus and jesus will become that person and the hidden things will be revealed to that person so what does that mean first of all the hidden things uh brings us back to the the beginning of the Gospel of Thomas, these are the secret sayings, or these are the hidden words that Jesus, the living Jesus, spoke and that Didymus Judas wrote down, and whoever finds the interpretation of these hidden words. So the hidden words will be revealed. But what does it mean to drink? He who drinks from my mouth, I will become like him, and he will become like me. This is a this is actually resonates a lot with another saying in the Gospel of Thomas, saying 13. Uh, I could maybe read it and you will see the connection that we can make between those sayings. And this is what I was telling you in the introduction I w- when I was talking about the importance of readers, for readers to connect sayings together, to construct what I call a network of meanings between sayings. In Logion 13, it it reads as follows. Jesus said to his followers, as to his disciples, compare me uh, to something and tell me what I am like. 
Simon Peter said to him, You are like a just messenger. Matthew said to him, You are like a wise philosopher. Thomas said to him, Teacher, my mouth is utterly unable, or I would actually translate the, con uh, the Coptic, uh, unwilling to say what you are like. Jesus said, I am not your teacher. He says this to Thomas. Because you have drunk, you have become intoxicated from the bubbling spring that I have tended. And he took him and withdrew and spoke three words to him. When Thomas came back to his friends, they said to him, what did Jesus say to you? Thomas said to him, if I tell you one of the sayings he spoke to me, you will pick up rocks and stone me and fire will come from the rocks and consume me. But what's very important in that saying is when Jesus asks his disciples to be compared, uh, the two primary disciples, Simon Peter and Matthew, do not respond accordingly to what is expected. Whereas Thomas says, my mouth will not compare you. I am unwilling to do so because you're undescribable. You're above and beyond description. And this is where Jesus says, I'm not your, you see, I'm not your master anymore. Mm -hmm. That means that you're like me. So, and he gave him additional revelation that he could not give to the other three. But the reason why Thomas was able to speak in those terms, because he had drunk, you see, he had, he had drunk from Jesus's, in a sense, bubbling spring. But th this spring is essentially the sayings of this gospel. You see, these are the hidden sayings that Jesus spoke and that Judas Thomas wrote down. So if a disciple uh, drinks from the mouth of Jesus, meaning if a disciple nourishes, nourishes himself or herself from the hidden sayings of this gospel, he will become like Jesus. There will be a, a fusion of identities between the disciple and the master. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> no small feat, I suppose. <laughs> no, no, it's not. No, no, exactly. And it's a familiarity, I think. Mm -hmm. This comes by, this is what we were saying at the, uh, in the introduction at one point, we were saying that th this could not be done by first time readers mm -hmm. of this gospel. It's actually to engage oneself in this text and know it enabled to make those connections between sayings. That is the most interesting thing that I find when we're doing our series and you know going through each mm -hmm. of these uh, you know these individual logia and as as we read them and and you say well okay in this one it has this theme but it also relates to this one and this one and yeah. this one and you can make these connections and yeah and yeah no matter how many times I've read the document and, and thought about it there's always something new that Pops Absol up. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I, when I started studying the Gospel of Thomas 10 years ago, uh, this was a journey that I, I started as a PhD, and uh, I, I worked with uh, one of the foremost specialists in the Francophone world on the Gospel of Thomas. And he told me, are you sure you're aware of what you're getting yourself into? Mm -hmm. That's the first thing he told me, because he says, when you get into Thomas, it sucks you in and you can't get out of it. Mm 
You're never going to find the end of it. And that's exactly the purpose of this text. You see, the purpose of this text is if you find, if you find the key, there's no, there's no more quest. Mm -hmm. You see, part of the quest or part of the, the gnosis or part of the knowledge is the quest. You see, it's, it's the laboring. It's, it's the intense laboring of trying to find the meaning uh, of, of those sayings. Mm -hmm. That's part of the gnosis uh, that is expected uh, on the part of readers. But if you find, you know, if you find the secret already, why, why continue reading it? Right. There's, there's no purpose. Yeah, then go start in on the Apocryphon of John and then spend the rest of your like life that. on that. <laughs> <laughs> and get a, an even bigger headache. With yeah, that, you know? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> that, that actually uh, reminds me uh, uh, of the teaser I gave in our video show, uh, Dr. Gagne. You talked a little bit about how the demiurge or demiurgical figure might be hiding in Thomas in the uh, the Thomasine version of um, yeah. the famous uh, pay on the Caesars, what is Caesars? So Some other scholars see, see some of this hints of the Gnostic, what we call the Gnostic mythos in in uh, Thomas. I want to ask you what you thought about that. Uh, some people see it in in uh, Logia 7, which is uh, yeah. the one about the lion. Um, yeah. the, and uh, blesses the lion, which a man eats, so the lion becomes a man. Mm -hmm. And then some people see the archons hiding in, in number 50, which is, um, Jesus says if people ask you, uh, where have you come from, tell them we have come from the light. So some, some scholars have said, well, the the people who are he, he's giving instruction for when you die and you're confronting the the archons, yeah, or if you're trying yeah. to ascend during life. So I was wondering what you thought about those ideas, or if uh, those particular two uh, uh, logia, it's a logia, is that the logion? And yeah. uh, in those two sayings, uh, or and if you see if you see any uh, hints of the Gnostic mythos anywhere else in Thomas. Yeah, I, I think, like I said, I, uh, probably Logion 100 because of the, the reference to God, which is one of the only references to God uh, compared to uh, the usual reference that Jesus has uh, about the father, your father, his father. Um, I think there's there could be a case for Logion 7, uh, where the, the lion, it can be an image of of the demiurge, yes, and that has been uh, defended by several scholars. That could be that could be some kind of of uh, uh, there could be some kind of rapport there, and of course, definitely Logion fifty, uh, where you have that series of of questions. Yeah. Uh, in the context of of other texts, that series of questions is often put in relation to the archon. Uh, if you if you read it elsewhere, uh, I think in the one of the uh, I think it's the first or second apocryphon of James. You you'll have again the archons asking those types of questions: Where do you come from? Where are you going? Mm -hmm. And and uh, yeah, in Thomas, um, of course the archons are not themselves identified. It's just if they say, um, it's possible. I, it could be definitely uh, the 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 uh, the tradition of the archons that's integrated into uh, the uh, saying fifty, and maybe the writers uh, or at least the compiler of saying fifty, maybe for him it wasn't a reference or he made something else out of that reference. It could be people opposing if we're 
we're thinking about a, a group of people that were Thomasine, let's say, if we would we would uh, favor that 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 perspective, uh, a group of uh, Thomasine Christians. So if people ask you where you come from, where you do, you answer this way. But it could be in the world, you see. So both perspectives are possible. Um, of course, Logion 50 is in the context of Logion 49. And Logion 49 talks about uh, the, the elect that will return, that come from the kingdom and will return to it. Mm-hmm. So the context lends itself well to maybe that, that reference to the archons, even if the archons are not specifically mentioned because of Logion 49, which does speak about a return to the kingdom. It could be a possibility, yes. Absolutely, and uh, that's something that um, that I've been thinking about for a very long time, uh, and and um, the idea the idea of the ascent uh, yeah. process for uh, for as part of a Gnostic spiritual practice. Um, yeah, a lot of the Gnostic texts do make specific reference to an ascent that happens to the Gnostic. Yeah, ab- absolutely, and, absolutely, uh, and and I, the. Um, uh, April Deconic's Seek to See Him, which I have recommended on this show yeah, yeah. many, many times, is a, is a great explanation of the Gospel of Thomas in that context. And, absolutely, and, absolutely. Yeah. A visionary experience. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. And she focuses a lot on on Logion, uh, if my memory serves me right, I think uh, uh, 37, uh, where she talks about seeing the, uh, the Son of the Living One. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ascent there, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And 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 you're you're right in, in mentioning that if you read uh, the the Nagamati texts themselves, uh, there's so many references to a, uh, an ascent. Yeah, it's it's constantly there. So how is that to be interpreted? Uh, is this something that is internal? Is this something that people actually? Is it some kind of um, out-of-body experience? It's it's Reptilian it's difficult. Aliens. To, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It's very it's very it's very difficult to 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 kind of uh, explain. But they did uh, at least try to put down in in writing their their cosmological understanding of this possible ascent Mm -hmm. um was it a spiritual thing that they 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 lived you see the thing is when you look at 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 even early christian practices um things like uh, the the baptism for example in in early christianity they used to baptize people and they still do today but early christians used to immerse people Mm-hmm. Uh, underwater, it wasn't just sprinkling on on the forehead, but it was a complete immersion. If you read Paul, what Paul has to say about baptism in Romans chapter six and in other uh, Pauline letters, he's going to talk about uh, baptism as an identification with Christ in his death and resurrection. So you see, in the ritual of baptism, he ascribes in that ritual, a spiritual significance to there's a spiritual meaning to that to that physical ritual mm-hmm. they went through a ritual but it represented something spiritually so often when you you have texts that deal with ascent at Nagabadi you're going to have a lot of references also to baptism mm-hmm. 
that are mentioned in conjunction with ascent. Yeah. So was uh, was baptism practice or or you know the the the, the ritual practices of baptism in some of these groups? Uh, did they tie this to their understanding of ascent, mm -hmm. of spiritual ascent? It is quite possible because even in in other Pauline texts, like I'm thinking about Colossians and others, uh, Ephesians, he's going to talk about being that that Christians uh, through their baptism are now seated with Christ in the heavenlies, mm -hmm. but Christians are on earth. You see, mm -hmm. Christians are still on earth, but spiritually. They are sitting with Christ in the heavenly realm, so it could be very similar uh, for for those people that that wrote about ascent. It could be tied to a a a, a ritualistic practice, for example, baptism, but which had some kind of spiritual meaning attached to that. Uh, to that ritual, a spiritual meaning that would maybe, uh, or a spiritual experience that would probably be experienced at death, maybe. So it's uh, these are all questions because we weren't there, so we don't right. know exactly how they were doing this. But you know, with the text, we we try to struggle and we try to reconstruct what is what is po what is possible, what is plausible. Jonathan, you had. Uh... We all, we still got some more. How are we doing for for time? We got we got some time. Okay, uh, uh, Dr. Candy. If you, so we talked about twinship. We talked a little bit about gnosis. But, but I was wondering if you could uh, pick out and sort of talk about some of the other major themes that you see in Thomas. What are some of the recurring themes and ideas and concepts that seem to pop up in saying after saying? Yeah, you have a lot of uh, references to the kingdom in Thomas. Um, many references to the kingdom as being this. It's in you. It's not. It's not something that is physical, but it's in you. So, and it's also something that you will from where you come from. So you were before being born. You existed. You were in the kingdom. Huh? You came into into the world, but you will return to the kingdom. So there's a many many references to kingdom. There's a lot of parables that are very similar to um, the parables that we find in the synoptic tradition, but they they have a kind of a spiritualized sense in Thomas in relation to the kingdom. So the kingdom comes up very often. The idea of the elect is another major theme. It's, it's this idea that there is a specific chosen group of individuals. The elect are always those that understand the secret sayings of Jesus. So if you decipher if you engage yourself in trying to understand the secret sayings of Jesus, then you're you're an elect. Eh? You're a chosen one. This is what this is how it's called. Eh? These people are, are 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 called the chosen. Those that are chosen. So the elect is 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 a constant theme that comes back. Um, the notion of I was I was telling you about the father. The father is 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 very much present in. Uh, in the Gospel of, of Thomas. He's often referred to as the living father, which is a qualifier that is also applied to Jesus, by the way, and the living Jesus. And we're going to talk in, in Logion 4, for example, the living father. In Logion um, uh, 37, uh, the son of the living one. So 
the father is very important and he's often seen as the father of Jesus as the father of the disciples um, and of course Jesus is presented in a in a peculiar manner in the Gospel of John uh, of, of Thomas I should say um, sometimes such in such a way that um, there could there could be some confusion between the father jesus the pleroma the kingdom because all of these things are also designated the same way as jesus is designated for example i'll give you a couple of examples um, in our famous logion 50 it tells us that uh, one of the questions is where do you come from we come from the light this is one of the things that is mentioned. We come from the light, uh, from the place where it, it has established itself, and we will return to the light. So they, they are children of light. They're actually called that way. It's interesting, if you continue reading Thomas, that you come to Logion 77, and Jesus is going to say, I am the light. Huh? I am the light that, that, that shines upon all things. And uh, I'm just going to read it because it's it's actually Please. very, uh, very interesting. Uh, the first part of Logion 77, Jesus said, I am the light that is over the all or all things. It depends on how you translate the Coptic peteref. It could either be all things or it could also refer to a technical term that is used in other Nagamadi texts as the all, as a reference to the pleroma or the divine realm. So if you if you understand it as the divine realm, it would be that Jesus is himself this light and this divine realm from which it says, I am the all. And Jesus says, I am the light that is over all things. I am the all. From me, all has come forth and to me, all has reached. So you see here, what's interesting is that you have the idea of light, okay, so the children, they come from the light. Logion 77, it says, uh, Jesus is the light, and from all, and, and from that light, all things comes, come forth. What's interesting when we read Logion 50, uh, if you remember Logion, right prior to Logion 50, you had Logion 49, which says, um, uh, blessed are the uh, the chosen and the elect, for they come from the kingdom and they will return to the kingdom. Mm -hmm. For it, the kingdom is theirs. Right? So they, they come from the kingdom, they'll return to the kingdom. So you see, you can make all sorts of associations here. You can make an association between the idea of light. They are children of light. They come from the light. But in 49, it says they come from the kingdom. So there is a connection between kingdom, light, and then light and Jesus in Logion 77. You see, so you're almost talking, you're, these things are almost synonymous mm. with each other. Jesus, as the source of all things, as being himself called the light, and from him all things emerge, meaning even the children of light. The children of light in Logion 50, which say they come from the light, and the elect, who are also, in a sense, the children of light themselves, come from the kingdom. So there's a correspondence between kingdom, light, Jesus, the pleroma. So you see how you make those connections. And this is an important, like Jesus himself, as, as, a, as, a, 
as a figure in in this gospel is is significant to the point where in some logia uh, uh, you, you wonder if there's a difference between even Jesus and the Father, and and uh, some some early scholars were talking about even the possibility of of modalism in in the Gospel of Thomas. Modalism is is uh, was uh, was understood at the time as being a second century heresy. Uh, we don't like scholars to talk in terms of heresy because there's mm -hmm. no, there was no clear orthodoxy <laughs> in the second, third, and fourth century. Um, but uh, modalism was was uh, was actually uh, the uh, the the idea that Jesus was the same as the Father, the Father was the same as Jesus, Jesus was the same as the Spirit, the Spirit was the Father. There was there was no dis differentiation between the the three entities. So uh, if Thomas makes uh, or, or describes Jesus in similar ways as the Father, there is some kind of almost confusion between the Father and Jesus. Uh, some scholars thought that, oh, maybe we have traces of modalism in the Gospel of Thomas, uh, where there's almost an equivalency between the Father and, and Jesus. And that would not be surprising because the Gospel of, of Thomas, what it does is it it wants the disciple to become like Jesus so it is quite possible that Jesus is like the father you see if the disciple is to become like Jesus it is possible that this is to emulate the relationship between the father and Jesus hmm. so and by the transient property of <laughs> whatever then also whatever. to be like the, you yeah. know, the father as well yeah, yeah 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 in terms of relationship uh in terms of bonding in terms of oneness mm -hmm. of divine oneness of being one with the divine yeah yeah well before we wrap up i wanted to ask you about the um the uh inquisitive minds podcast can you tell us what oh that is? yes yes uh, this is a podcast that we started two years ago. Uh, it deals with uh, critical thinking on religion, history, culture, and sometimes even science. Uh, but of course, we're not scientists, mm -hmm. but we, we ask questions that are uh, of interest to that. The goal of that podcast was essentially to try to make um, academic, uh, academic work accessible uh, to people that are not necessarily in academia. The uh, the reason for that is that often academic academics are a bit uh, in their own world. Mm. I know what it is being an academic. Uh, you know, we go to conferences, we talk amongst academics about things that in are interested are interesting for academics. But <laughs> you know, people uh, which I which I say people in the real world <laughs> uh, don't really care about. So uh, what we try to do is uh, we we try to take. Uh, academic sometimes complicated things and and uh, try to to bring this in an, an an accessible way and and try to show the relevancy of our work because as academics as scholars we have a, a social responsibility uh, especially scholars of religion uh, with everything that's happening in the world that in relation to religion, there's a lot of violence. There's all sorts of issues pertaining to religion. Uh, we have a we have a social responsibility to to actually address some of these uh, some of these issues, and we try to do this through the Inquisitive Minds podcast. We've dealt with multitudes of 
of uh, topics. We we talked a lot about Gnosticism. We talked about biblical studies. Uh, we talked about religion and violence. We talked about atheism, secularism. Um, we talked about science, cognitive science of religion, uh, mystical experiences. We, we, we've tried to make this as, as manageable and as understandable as possible. And uh, we've been, uh, it's in our second year, we're almost uh, two years full. And uh, we've uh, had over 30,000 downloads of our podcast. So we're, we're quite happy. And I'm actually working with uh, two of my graduate students. Uh, that are uh, co uh, co uh, co producers and and uh, co hosts of, of of the podcast and it and we we have to we started when we started we actually have a, had a podcast a week but uh, we're so busy it, it, it has mm-hmm. become a bit more difficult so we have like two podcasts a month now mm-hmm. so it's but it's 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 good and uh, we had good feedback and it's. Uh, yeah, it's it, it 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 comes out usually on Mondays. So next Monday we should have another podcast. <laughs> All right, fantastic. And then you can find that at Critical Pod on Twitter. Yes, yes, that's on Twitter, and uh, we, we, you can um, you can just type in on Google Inquisitive Minds Podcast. We're at um, uh, our hosting service is Podbean dot uh, com. So very easy to find no problem and if you go on my website andregagne.weebly.com there will be a page dedicated to the podcast which will bring you to uh, the hosting service for the podcast fantastic so go and check that out if you if you have an opportunity so uh, thank you once again, Dr. Gagne, for joining us on the podcast and on the video show. Um, we love the Gospel of Thomas, and we are so glad that uh, you could share some of your wisdom with us. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to, ha- to be here. Thank you very much for your invitation. All right. And for everybody who is listening along at home, we will see you next week. This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c.